Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is out today and our guest in her place, Washington Free Beacon editor Eliana Johnson. Hi, Eliana. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, of course. And with us, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, um, you know, one thing you can say about Democratic state legislatures, they love to run away. They're like they're like uh, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table in, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Whenever they get in trouble... They're not things are going to happen that they don't want to have happen at the end at, in a legislative session. They shout run away. The 2011, uh, I think it was 2011, uh, the Wisconsin state legislature ran to uh, Minnesota to motels Illinois, in Minnesota. I think. Was it Illinois? Other Sorry, way over thinking. the border, yeah. Yeah. Uh, ran to Illinois to. Uh, to get themselves away from, uh, to try to prevent a quorum to vote on Scott Walker's budget, and um, this is either this fir- the second this, and now in Texas, Noah, il- illuminate the wonders of the Texas de- the Democrats in the Texas state legislature. This is a, yeah, a truly incomprehensible misadventure. Um, Except the they get a happened. vacation. They're getting a vacation on somebody's dime, and we don't know whose. But please, they're go on. having a grand old time, and they want everyone to know it. And it is strategically inept. Um, not the first time this has happened. Democrats did this in two thousand three. Smartly, they at least uh, flew to a neighboring state, uh, Oklahoma. Um, this time, they elected to go to, of all places, Washington D.C which could not provide Republicans in Texas with a more advantageous optical contrast. Um, This was apparently a compromise move because where they wanted to go initially were places like Arizona and West Virginia, not to lobby the public of Texas to oppose this this, uh, voting bill, which, by the way, is controversial because it's one of many election bills that codifies into law some of the emergency voting restrictions that were implemented during the pandemic, while pairing a few of them that were excessive back, like drive-through voting, overnight voting, 24-hour voting, that sort of thing. Uh, So they're not arguing about the merits of this bill. What they want to do and what they have done is to argue in favor of congressional Democrats in Washington's effort to pass their own election law, completely losing the thread of the plot they had established And in the process, they photograph themselves every step of the way, giving Republicans in Texas everything they could ever possibly want in terms of optical blundering. They found they photographed themselves having a jolly old time on this bus that they chartered with a case of Miller Lite, giving John Cornyn the opportunity to for, you know, the easiest dunk in the world. It wasn't a native Texas beer. Even they got themselves two chartered flights where they flew maskless in defiance of FAA guidelines, for which there are no exemptions for private planes, private and public alike. Um, just for, And then they touched down in Washington, D.C. and had a little press conference and enjoyed glowing national coverage in the national limelight. I can't imagine any Texan, unless the, except like the most, most cultured and erudite in the darkest blue areas of the darkest blue cities in Texas, looks on this and says, well, this is a good idea. You're doing Lord's work here. You're really representing us. 
And Democrats, you know, in, in the national media are trying to convince themselves that this is a great idea, that this is, you know, really smart. And, and the Democrats and national de- national Democrats should take ownership of this, as Kamala Harris has, saying these guys are freedom fighters, because they're saying, you know, these extra extra parliamentary maneuvers are the sort of thing that you just have to do in defense of noble interests. And Republicans don't have any problem when they, do, when they use the filibuster. And they compare it to the filibuster. The filibuster is a parliamentary maneuver. The, the proper comparison, the one that Democrats don't appeal to because it really exposes the folly of this move, are government shutdowns. That's what Republicans do when they really want to gum up the works. And that's what the public hates. These, these flights, you know, when they, when they have, uh, evade the, the task that voters have charged them with, are not very popular. They never work. And they're exceeding their remit wildly by focusing on national issues. It is mind-boggling. Okay, so basically what they're doing is by not being present, they deny uh, the possibility of a quorum necessary to conduct ordinary business in the state legislature, right? So when these things happen, when they happen in 2003 uh, in Texas, when they happen in 2011 in Wisconsin, and when they've happened now... um, it's it's by definition a gimmick because the only way that they will not inevitably have to come back and uh, you know is is by never returning to the state and never again returning to the chamber uh, because at some point they have to return to the chamber and then there'll be a quorum and then they'll vote the legislation in so at the at the very best it is a it is a uh, high-profile delaying tactic, and and nothing more. And uh, for reasons that I that elude me, um, it's a, apparently illegal. Like uh, you know, in two thousand three, as I recall, and this is so old, but <laughs> so eighteen years ago, that nobody knew where the Texas legislators were. Do people remember this? Like, you know, we didn't have geo tracking on phones and stuff like that, so. They fled and they were in motels in various places and people didn't know where they were. There was a little bit of that in 2011 in, with Wisconsin. Like, where are they? We don't know where they are. We can't find them. Um, which is funny because, of course, now you can find anybody anywhere at any time if they do anything. And, you know, because of the glories of our totalitarian social media and, and geolocation devices. But... Um, there's no point to this. All if you think you're going to get people to back, if you think you're going to get the people who are have the votes to pass whatever it is they're going to vote to back down by running away and doing something illegal, uh, you're kind of deranged. And so it's a stunt, purposeless stunt, except for getting. Attention, which again is what all, as Yuval Levin has made very clear to us, is largely what American politics is about now, is like not actually doing your job, but using politics as a platform to become a performance artist. Yeah, this is the the best example of it, because they are skipping the job to go be a sort of performance troupe. Ilya, you guys guys at the Free Beacon, you know, track... uh, you know, the hilarious Democratic and liberal media hypocrisy is accusing Republicans of doing everything that Democrats do uh, as though it is a wildly illegitimate. What, 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 what strikes me about what happened in Texas is that this bill, uh, a bill was introduced sort of at the, you know, the beginning of the year 
that has been largely amended uh, and and uh, and and sort of refined over time to remove questionable provisions that really were put in to somehow soothe the Trumpian idea that elections can be you know are being stolen, which obviously didn't happen in Texas. Trump won Texas, whatever, um, and yet they're talking about this bill as though it is, you know, a poll tax. What do you, what do you make of that? There, there are a few things like the substance of the bill aside that that have caught my attention. I'll get to the substance and particularly the media coverage of the substance. Uh, First is the filibuster and the abolition of the filibuster is like one of the main issues Democrats are confronting in DC right now. Uh, And, because they are against Republican obstruction. Uh, I wonder how many of these Texas Democrats support the abolition of the filibuster because they just can't, they don't want any obstruction. This is like the worst kind of obstruction. Uh, The second is, do we think Abbott is actually going to have these guys arrested? He says he will. Uh, And John, you mentioned that in Texas, like what, what they are doing is illegal. So I'm I'm curious how that might change the public perception of this. Uh, that would and be fun. That would be. Um, I mean, I mean, Rick Rick Perry, Rick Perry, if I remember correctly, Rick Perry sent Texas Rangers after the Texas legislators back in 2003. I mean, it's like hilarious. Like it's like Perry. it was like he was you know he was riding you know they they jumped on their horses with their you know. It's like Rooster Cogburn was going after the was going after the the legislators. Um, so, uh, but they are, you know, I mean, this happens. The Capitol Police have chased in in Washington. The Capitol Police have chased people down who have somehow gone a wall. I don't know why. I don't know why this is legitimate, uh, but you know, I'm just going to presume it is that somehow you are not allowed to miss a, you know, you are not allowed to do something to prevent a vote. Like if you're a legislature, it's illegal, and it's, it must be well, a law passed by the legislature. <laughs> since laws are happens, passed by legislature, these, uh, these arresting officers will vault quickly into the top of the uh, the top contenders for Free Beacon Men of the Year. Uh, <laughs> But let me address really quickly your you know, your comment on the substance. And I really do think I've watched the coverage of first the Georgia law and now these laws in other states that are largely an, an effort to uh, roll back the provisions that were made because of COVID now that we're moving out of the pandemic. But the way they are characterized in the media, I think, is really a case study in why public trust in media uh, has declined so much. I heard on, I think it was Morning Joe, and maybe two weeks ago now, but Yamichelle Cinder on PBS, who's one of the most prominent White House correspondents in the country, and uh, the White House correspondent for the public access television channel, characterized the Georgia law as if they don't like your vote, they're not going to count it. And it just has stayed with me as uh, you know, a, a Democratic opponent of the law wouldn't have put it any differently. And the coverage of these laws has been so uh, factually inaccurate and tendentious that I do think it is as much a case study in um, in the media 
as it is uh, of what the Democrats in these states are, are trying to do and what sort of voting laws that, that they would like to see happen. And it's done Joe Biden no favors. One of his first unambiguously bad news cycles as president was when he got caught flat-footed repeating verbatim narratives about the Georgia law that had been disseminated in the mainstream press, that the mainstream press was there yeah. then and only then forced to tackle with and found completely unfounded and baseless and slanderous. You mean Jim and yet Crow. they continue to do Jim it. They Crow whip themselves up into this froth. Right, but here's the thing. I don't know that this is bad because I don't know anymore that there's a middle ground that looks at this and says, oh, come on. Like that, that's, that's the problem is this stuff is technical, how you vote, where you vote, when you vote, how it works. And so the, so the people who are getting wrought up about it in either direction are par- highly partisan um, uh, or, you know, and so, uh, the people who are not highly partisan can't make any sense out of it. I think well, it they, is the media's yeah. job to help people make sense yeah. of it and say these are the facts, and that's where they're right. falling down. I do think the average person looks at these and thinks, you know, some of the restrictions sensible, maybe some of them aren't sensible. But overall, if the American people support some sort of restrictions on voting. We've seen that in polls over and over again. And by the way, like we're seeing precisely the same uh, – ridiculous characterization of both sides of the argument in the debate over critical race theory, where one side says uh, we're teaching white kids to hate each other. And, and the other side says, we just want to teach about, you know, slavery in the civil war. Yeah. Show me the poll though, where the national voters are energized about state level voting rights. I mean, even in right. these States there, there, you know, there's a consensus around the need to have some restrictions, most of all, including voter ID, which Democrats essentially tacitly accepted when Joe Manchin said, you know, here's my compromise voting, but I was going to get rid of these voter ID things. And then people like Stacey Abrams, you know, sweat, wiped the sweat from their brows, said, phew, we have an off ramp here from our rhetorical overreach and jumped on it, took it. The craziness about voter ID. So this is the thing, like you, you, you can disaggregate or separate out lines of attack or policy in relation to voting. Um enormous numbers of people support voter ID. I think it's like 80% of people support voter ID. Why? Does that include the people in like these rural areas who might not have access to a Xerox machine? Or... Okay, you've got to explain you got oh, What's the sample that size joke. for this poll? I was going to ask if, if you guys yeah. had already talked about Kamala Harris's yeah. comment that it'd be we just not, tremendous. No. This would be a tremendous burden for Americans who live in rural areas uh, voter ID, that is, because they don't have access to a Xerox machine by which they... I'm not sure I totally understood the comments. They could photocopy their ID? Um, okay, so let me explain this. See, in in the you know in, in most rural areas, they only have mimeograph machines <laughs> and carbon paper because um, the Tennessee Valley Authority hasn't elect, properly electrified the area... Uh, and so you have to use a mimeograph machine because it doesn't require uh, electricity. Because, you know, as you know, in America, rural areas have, have no electricity. And so, uh, and, you know, but, you know, even worse, you can't mimeograph your driver's license, which you also can't get <laughs> because the driver's license office is 500 miles away. Um Apparently Kamala Harris is unaware of the fact that there are these things called cell phones and cell phones have things called 
cameras, um, which were a recent invention uh, by a guy named George Eastman in Rochester. He just did it like last year. It's got patented. And you take these pictures, photographs, and then you can send them through this magical process called email. And, and, and it, it's, you know, so, um, but it's new. So I don't want you to blame Kamala Harris for saying we can't have voter ID because in rural areas, people can't, don't have photocopy machines. Uh, what I because, love about this, um, <clears throat> yes, it reminds me that, do you recall that there was talk, uh, I think it was sort of right after uh, Biden won, um, but before the administration took, uh, uh, came to the White House, of making Kamala some sort of envoy for Flyover America, for the I Flyover States. That. I can't imagine like, a, like, a like worse to do match. like to do outreach. She she was she was the she was who they thought of. It didn't it didn't materialize. What was the logic? Well, she it. does have to fly over on her way to the go. southern yeah. border. She's got to fly over a lot of these states, you know. Uh, you know, I think it is time for us uh, once again, and maybe Eliana, this is a, you know, uh, this is a potential feature uh, for the for the free beacon. I think, um, I, I I think we need to start asking, uh, what is the dumbest thing Kamala Harris said like this afternoon, like or you know, di- separate the days out into morning, afternoon, and evening because I, I'm not sure that there aren't, won't be, you know, to have a competition. Like she said, this in the morning, this in the afternoon, this in the evening. Which one of the three is the dumbest thing that she said? I mean, she, if you think that Dan Quayle was dumb, uh, I don't know how you can watch Kamala Harris over the last seven months and not be absolutely, if you're like a rational Democrat worried about Joe Biden being 82 in 2024, and she's standing there as the heir apparent and, you know, insuperable nominee choice in case Biden can't run again, which I sort of presume he can't, should you be scared out of your wits? She is terrible at this. I'm not even talking about terrible at policy. Like, every time she opens her mouth, practically. I mean, you know, granted, Dan Dan Quill misspelled potato. It's hard to to beat misspelling the word potato. I grant you that. But, I mean, she, I, I just, I don't know that we've seen a public run like this from anybody ever. Well, you know, uh, a Kamala Gaff counter feature, uh, perhaps with sound added, I think would be a good addition to the Beacon site. But my predecessor, Matt Continetti, his column, I think, a week ago was about Kamala Harris, and he referred to her as the Veep from Veep um, and talked about her, the combination of phoniness and incompetent incompetence that has to be making the Biden administration and Democrats uh, nervous. And it's worth noting, I think, that her um, her favorability rating is underwater. Um, you know, she's less popular than Joe Biden. That makes sense. She ran a much less successful presidential campaign. But all of these features that we're seeing in her, they were evident um, when she was in the Senate and they were evident during her presidential campaign. Like these are... Mm-hmm. 
So Selena Meyer, Selena Meyer, the Veep on Veep, always knew when she screwed up. She would do something, say something, like stumble over something, and then it would be over. And then she would summon her staff into her office and have a complete tantrum about how they didn't brief her or she couldn't believe what just happened. How could she have been so stupid? Like Kamala Harris is like futzing around, going along, seemingly unaware of the record that she is compiling of, uh, you know, unelected, making her unelectable in my view. The, the, the She's totally incapable of like thinking on her feet and performing off her, on her feet and going off script, which I think is a big problem when people put such a premium on quote unquote authenticity. Uh, she's, she's completely incapable of doing that and on capitalizing mm-hmm. on potentially, pro- potentially winning political issues. I think but that's what makes her so cringy is this, I think, unique combination of phoniness and incompetence, because normally if you're phony, you're you'd be pretty good at coming up with answers that people would be able to accept and digest. You know, that that that's why you're phony is to be able to, to come up with the right soundbite, you know, right. But but but, to, right. but to be that glaringly phony and then miss the bullseye. By so wide a mark, every time you're asked a question is extraordinary. It's kind of like the 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 college student who gets bad grades and has no social life. You know, like you're supposed, <laughs> you're supposed to yeah. sort of you know if you if your if your grades <laughs> suffered because you were partying too much, that makes sense. I think we all have to probably consider at this point, you know, the, whether or not she really is truly the heir apparent. Um, as recline had a piece which essentially was the premise of a piece that I had written two weeks prior, which said, you know, what is the white Biden white house doing? They're saddling her. They're burdening her with all these, you know, special issues. She's the, she's the chief point person on these issues that she has no control over that are irreconcilable from her perspective and that she's destined to, to have a terrible record on and their democratic priorities from the border, which was this, ongoing humiliation for her for months on end and now voting rights issues on the state level, which her, her entire portfolio seems to be just cringing and like uh, acting affected over without being able to deliver a single, bring a single achievement home for Democrats. If the idea here is to make her a less attractive alternative to Joe Biden, which frankly, I don't think can be ruled out based on the choice of her as a VP at all. Um, maybe then there is a little bit more strategy from this White House. It's kind of hard to see it. I'm being very charitable. We're talking, by the way, about like her uh, external, her public, the public perception of her. Politico had an amazing piece on what's happening inside the White House, where apparently her staffers are fleeing in droves. So it seems to me like Amy Klobuchar suffered from that. It seems to me that that's also a vulnerability for her. But for as bad as she is, is managing the public side of stuff, she apparently is not an effective manager or inside operator, uh, at least in terms of maintaining loyalty among her staff. Okay, so she so she screwed up in the way she talked about uh, voting and uh, voter ID. Again, weirdly screwing up because, as Noah said, Joe Man- the Democratic Party has effectively given in on voter ID for very good reasons because everybody thinks, well, you know, I have to show a driver's license to, like, buy a 
lottery ticket or whatever. You know, I mean, why can't I show a driver's license to vote? Um, and by the way, also in protective terms, the idea that voter ID uh, is not, you know, that that a world in which uh, no voter has to prove that they're a voter is a world in which Democrats have a natural advantage is stupid because anybody can do voter fraud. <laughs> it's like, you know, if voter fraud becomes kind of like part of the the way in which you pursue uh, elections because you have to you can't unilaterally disarm um, you can you can pack you can do it in you know rural Georgia just as well as you can do it in some precinct in you know do it in some precinct in Philadelphia like that's why it, it benefits everybody uh, it, nationally I mean locally you know it's ballot packing the ballot is a slightly different story because that often involves a machine strengthening itself but but people like rationally say I don't see why that's so terrible. Then you you can start teasing out more complicated things, which is have some of these uh, making it easier to vote around elections, uh, which trigger the possibility of voter fraud, right? Ballot harvesting is one and uh, having sort of these ballot drops where there are no, no one's looking, you know, like just like a mailbox and you just drop your ballot in and how do you know whose ballot it is and whether it's someone who's executing somebody else's ballot, all that stuff. And then, and then this third thing, which is an issue and which Republicans are doing bad things about, I think, and which you can't just dismiss, which is whether it is being made easier for state legislatures to overturn results um, in states when there are contested elections or recounts or something like that, whether somehow states are given the power to interfere with the seating of electors or the, you know, sending rival slates of electors or whatever. And that's a real thing. And that's a very complicated thing. And Democrats, by mushing everything together, are actually harming their capacity or ability to scare Republicans out of the worst impulses that they are generating here because of Trump's, you know, false claims about the election being stolen. In other words, if they focused on this is a really bad thing that's going on here that is unprecedented and that takes us into entirely new territory where, uh, you know, election much easier for state legislatures uh, to overturn state counts um and then did that without reference to the other stuff wouldn't that be better i think the answer is yes and they would be scared out of it it's if you mush it all together and you're like okay well you know voter id is good and and so probably this other stuff is fine that's where they're that's what another like uh unanticipated consequence of buying every saying in every single case like what Republicans are doing is bad and what we do is good. I was just going to say it's like another version of the Trump phenomenon where we heard all these horrible things about Trump. But, you know, Mitt Romney put his dog on the roof of his car and cut some kids, you know, hair against his will when he was in prep school. And George W. Bush, I still remember because I was 16, like dragged. Um, I forget who the guy was, but they, you know, there was an ad showing essentially intimating that Bush had dragged this guy behind his pickup truck. 
Yeah, ja- Jasper, Jasper, Texas. Yeah. And um, and I agree. So I just think it's a it's an interesting thing because there's a serious discussion that needs to be had about I think Republicans going uh, going insane about voting stuff based on Trump's craziness and uh, this is something that you know Chris Starwalt uh, hits uh, who by the way we should say Eliana and Chris Starwalt are now doing a podcast together called Ink Stained Wretches you should go to Apple and Stitcher and wherever and subscribe. Uh, just search for wretches. That's my, my search, pitch. Thank yeah, you for the plug. Because how many podcasts use the word wretches? It's really not. You know, it's not a it's not a selling word usually, but at least it's a you know yeah. It's you can't you can't not find it there anyway. But Chris, you know, who has a, who wrote a piece for commentary on how uh, Republicans are being foolish to think that low turnout you know inevitably helps them and and hurts Democrats that Republicans need high turnout just like Democrats do. And particularly now that they are increasingly have an increasingly uneducated base uh, that needs to have access, needs it to be as easy as possible to vote um, because they're not going to vote otherwise. But, and he also pushes this whole thing, which is like, do you really want to be in a position where one of the two political parties at the end of the next election cycle for two election cycles is making some kind of a claim that the election failed? And that, you know, I mean, you, you could have tens of millions of people thinking that the election system has failed. And then we are like I don't know if we're in civil war, but we are in we are in a constitutional crisis of a sort that we would won't have seen since the you know 1876. Um, and you know what happened after 1876 when the election was stolen, really from Tilden. Um, all these horrible things happened. You know, Reconstruction ended. Uh, uh, there was a you know there were there were waves of political assassinations and then there were these reform laws passed that we're still that we can't make sense out of even now about how electors are counting and stuff like that so you know it's this is not an issue that we shouldn't be considering um but democrats are making it worse uh in the way that they're considering it and acting like idiots by running away from running away from uh, their their legitimate responsibilities um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Anyway, uh, you know, what's not bizarre is the X chair. Yes, I went there. The X chair is not bizarre. It is the luxury supercar of office chairs. I've been talking to you about it for months. I sit in it every day and its newest innovation, LMAX temperature regulation takes seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent-pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your low back. Feeling a bit warm this summer? Set your LMAX to cooling. The air conditioning in your home or office cranked up too high? Set LMAX to heating, warm up, and soothe hard muscles. Feeling stressed from too many Zoom calls? Turn on LMAX massage therapy and relax. And Exeter still has that patented dynamic, dynamic variable lumbar support, already best in class, and now with that LMAX, you add that, and you're just you're just cooking with Crisco. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. 
There has never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of X-Chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So um, the Cuban protests continue, seem to actually be expanding, uh, uh, there's never, there hasn't been anything like this since 1994, and according to many people, there hasn't been anything like this in the history of the, you know, of the since the communist takeover, uh, which was 62 years ago, um, and the the rhetoric that is being used by the Cuba's president, uh, whose name is now a trivia question, and hopefully history may make sure ensure that the first post Castro leader of Cuba remains a trivia question if things happen that oust him from office. Uh his name is Miguel Diaz Canel Bermudez. Um he has come out with very aggressive rhetoric that does not so far seem to have stimulated what he wants. He said they'll have to walk over our dead bodies if they want to take on the revolution we're willing to do everything and we'll be on the streets battling. Um, meaning he wanted the sort of neighborhood block committees to come out and confront, violently confront the protesters. And it they haven't done it. So... Uh, well, do we know that? That they we, haven't done it? Very limited information coming out of the island, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I assume that if they'd done it, we would know that they'd done it because they would I want mean, we us can to know. We do know how this unfolds, at least if Venezuelan's uh, protests in 2014, 2015 are the model. Uh, it is that Secret Service and police uh, uh, wear plain clothes and infiltrate these protests and uh, are violent themselves or they form their own counter-protesting demonstrations to attack them. Um, militias of Venezuela relied on Cuban uh, support to put down the demonstrations. We can assume that Cuba will use Venezuelan support and possibly actors in Eastern Europe like Russia, um, which will be fl- you know, flown in to preserve the, the government's integrity. That's the sort of thing that we can expect, but I haven't heard anything about that owing in part to the very limited amount of information that's that's coming out of this place right now. Um, so the claims are that uh, we're we're doing this, which is which is hilarious. That we're, we 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 Americans are trying to you know stimulate a revolution in Cuba, uh, which you know I I just I figure that Cubans hear this and remember I, I some enormous number of Cubans, I mean most Cubans were not alive when, you know, America tried to assassinate Castro in the early 1960s. And my guess is like a third to a half of the population of a place like Cuba uh, wasn't alive when the Soviet Union was still around. And so the Cuba being this weird, isolated, lonely, you know, island uh, where everybody has one rich relative in America... And America is sitting there 90 miles off the shore 
glowing with wealth while they're driving in their 1957 Soviet cars, um, you know, that makes it a Tinder box, right? I mean, it's like, what, what, what argument is going to be made for these, for these people 30 and younger that their lives are so great or that, you know, the regime is so wonderful. They also have, um, there's a sort of parts of Cuba that are glowing with wealth actually right there. Um, that makes it just as much of a tinderbox. Those, there's sort of two economies. There's the, the the one that you know is is deals with the regime and benefits, and then 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 there then there is the one that does not and suffers, and that is the that is the you know that is the deep problem. With regard to the the fear on the part of you know, sophisticates in the foreign policy establishment that these protests will come to be associated with the United States, and that would be bad for the protesters, and that would be bad for the United States. Uh, this is the logic that prevailed over the course of the Obama administration led him to back off from supporting Iran, Iranians too, too, too carefully. Same with the Trump administration. It was a logic that was quoted in places like Reuters, where he could rhetorically support these protests, but you don't want to materially support them. You don't want to give them any sort of, any sort of a understanding that the United States will have their back either legislatively or in international forums, um, because then they could come to be associated with the United States and we would be responsible for whatever happens next. At no point has that ever been a compelling line of argumentation. Yeah, sure. People are going to blame the United States. So what? Let them. What have we gotten for our, for our, dis, for our you know, dispassionate detachment from these conflicts? We've gotten uh, a less free Iran. We've gotten a Venezuelan government that seems now more, more secure than ever, even though it has this parallel administration next to it. We've gotten it, Hong Kong is crushed. American officials are now warning businesses from doing business in Hong Kong of all places. And now the, the Chinese are so emboldened that they're openly intimating that the uh, hostile military takeover of Taiwan is an imminent threat. This is the sort of stuff that our, our dispassionate detachment has gotten us. And if you're satisfied with these outcomes, you shouldn't be. So this is the sort of thing that we can address in Cuba with very limited international fallout by taking absolutely 100% full and total ownership of these protests, materially supporting them insofar as it is possible, and warning this government of the consequences that will befall it if anything violent happens to them. I, I, I find these conversations peculiar because... This is a regime that stays in power either through entropy or 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 ha- having a a population that they have squashed whose enthusiasm and you know high spirit whatever have been you know squashed for 60 years and we're somehow supposed to think that the the people in them are sort of robots of foreign forces who are somehow gonna who are who are you know gonna, gonna rise up or fall down based on you know little triggers or things or put you know, buttons pushed from abroad like you know they they're ninety miles off the shore of the United States and for most of them that could be a million miles except they know. They have a cousin in Patterson, New Jersey. They have a they have you know they they have a a, a grandparent who or you know some a grand uncle who left and you know they hear he has a roofing business 
or 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 whatever and and then stuff comes from there they get you know zip they get little computers they get little zip drives with movies and tv shows on them they get money they get they get little bits of appliances that are brought you know by people who can travel from abroad and there are remittances um, one of the big liberal talking points this morning I heard on NPR was, you know, one of the reasons that this crisis has happened is that uh, Donald Trump uh, ended the remittances from Americans to Cuba, uh, and so they that so there's a you know there's a hardship which is caused by you know anti-communist frenzy uh, because people they were getting money and now they're not getting money. So I sort of looked it up. And what happened was their sanctions were imposed and Wells, uh, Western Union decided it was no longer worth it to them based on sanctions uh, regimes for them. There were 400 Western Union depots in Cuba, obviously entirely for the purpose of having Cuban um, – and you know how Western Union works. Like there's a Western Union kind of like desk or thing in a store, right? It's not like there's a Western Union store. Um and they they closed them down, but there are dozens of other ways to send remittances, including through banks or you know to transfer money, and people can bring things in through airports and all of that. But somehow we were to blame for the hardships. We are to blame for the hardships because Trump did terrible things, and therefore triggered this uh, revolt, as though. Any American would would live five minutes under the Cuban yoke and be and and not and not want to break out of it. I was going to say. I mean, I I was in Cuba on a high school trip actually. So this is twenty years ago now, uh, and it, it is amazing to be there. And by the way, like while there was a ban on a U.S. Tra- you know general ban on U.S. travel to Cuba. Foreigners from all over the world, South America and Europe, they have been vacationing in Cuba for years and years and years. So the Cuban people do have exposure to uh, what foreigners look like and the sorts of things they have. And this is a government that actively discriminates against its own citizens. So there are many, many places in Cuba, uh, the finest restaurants, the nicest shops, they exist, but Cubans are generally not allowed in them. And it's very easy to see once you've been there why somebody would put themselves on a raft and hurl themselves out into the ocean. Uh, I remember just being really struck uh, basically as a kid by the general misery uh, that existed on that island and the prohibitions that were available uh, on Cubans for things access to the beaches, restaurants, uh, stores that are available to foreigners. Their hospitals are divided between Cubans and foreigners. This is a, such an important point that needs to be emphasized. Not only is, is Cuba economically stratified, as all communist societies are, it's racially stratified. Yeah, It is a racially discriminatory society against darker-skinned Cubans. Uh, and and, and de blacks. Facto there and are Jor. many blacks in Cuba. Right. And so this is just one of the weirdest of all causes for modern liberals and Democrats and progressives to, to endorse. It is, it goes against everything they say they believe. In. And, you know, well, I, I just also just on that point, I, I've often found this, especially since um, Obama you know, moved towards a more normalized um, relationship between the U S and Cuba, this 
This impulse among Western, particularly American liberals, to vacation in Cuba out of some sense of effect, supposed affection um, for Cubans um, and to see presumably at least some of, of what Eliana describes and come back and say, oh, no, it's it's not that bad. Oh, I, I love the Cuban people and I feel, you know, I, I wish they had it better. But, you know, it's not that it's, it's it's still a wonderful place in many ways. And even had there's this sort of precious idea that um, because of the, the what they've been deprived of through commun- communism, the Cuban society sort of preserved in amber in a lot of ways. You know, it's 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 stuck in a sort of, you know, mid-century and all sorts of technological uh, ways. It and, is. It's like a curiosity to tourists. Exactly, it's curiosity, and and that that therefore for them for it to modernize would, in sense, <clears throat> be some sort of aesthetic tragedy. Well, either an aesthetic tragedy, or it's like it's a it's a it's a theme park. Yeah, it's a theme park visit to you know uh, a, a communist regime, frozen as communist regimes are. Uh, you know, a generation behind, you know, a, a generation or so behind or more, you know, behind behind the West. So um, it's so pristine, you know, it's like, right. gee, and, and, you know, because it's because it's in that climate, you know, cars from the 1950s still run. They don't get rusted. So you can drive around in the 1950s car. It's really, it's like, you know, it's like being in a in a movie. Yeah, it's, it's the wrong uh, I mean, on this pro, on the protests is as of yesterday was hunger fuels Cuba's protests. I think you have to admit that hunger is sort of a feature of a communist society at this point. It's it's not really sort of a a weird aberration. No, but it's our fault. They wouldn't be hungry if we didn't have these sanctions, you know, because, you know, it's not as though Cuba was a, Cuba was a country that, you know, is incapable of feeding itself. Can't feed itself. You know, it's like, it did. It did seventy years ago. Can't anymore. Gee, I wonder why. No. Um, what I don't wonder about is what would be good sheets for you to buy. I don't wonder about that because I know Bull and Branch knows high quality sleep doesn't stop at your mattress. Their ultra soft organic sheets are transparently sourced and produced in safe, fair conditions. You'll feel a difference and know you're making one. I mean, it's just great. These sheets started in 2014. People make them, you know, they 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 wanted to make sure that they were made, you know, ethically and that you could, you know, feel like they weren't being made with slave labor or in horrible conditions and in factories. And so they've, uh, so they not only make these great sheets, but they make them in a way that is, you know, ethical and sustainable, buttery soft, lightweight, and a 100% organic cotton sateen weave that's perfect for all seasons in a variety of colors and in all sizes from Twin Up to California King. Um, And they partner with family-owned businesses that align with the same values and standards. They're pledging to double U.S. assembly jobs this year, loved by three U.S. presidents, to experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Bowl and Branch. You can try them worry three for 30 nights with free shipping and returns. And my listeners get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary. Uh, so uh, 
uh, we have a one percent, almost point nine percent jump in inflation uh, in June from May, and now inflation running uh, at the highest rate annually since um, two thousand and eight. And uh, you know, some of this is there's a recovery. The we're we're talking about uh, too few, too many, you know. Too few goods, too many dollars chasing too few goods. Um, and a lot of that is because the supply chain was disrupted during the pandemic. So uh, the amount of goods that people can secure aren't as aren't as numerous as they were before. And now there's like people have a lot of money, a lot of money coming from government stimulus, a lot of money coming from unemployment, a lot of com- money coming from you know renewed employment and the recovery of the economy in general. So uh, the argument is that it may be transitory because some of this money uh, will run out, uh, and therefore the inflationary pressure will 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 decline. Uh, Democrats don't seem to want it to run out. I was just hearing about how um, there is this d- desperate hope that this three hundred dollar per child uh, subvention being offered as the child tax credit uh, for families making up to $150,000 a year if i if i have this right um that that should be permanent so which means that basically you have two kids you're going to get is it $600 a week or $600 a month or something like that from the federal government a month okay so you're going to get $6,000 if you have two kids you're going to get $7,200 a month from the federal government um in perpetuity $600 a month uh, you know i mean that's not a year I mean, okay, I, I'm not going to – larger policy questions about whether stuff like this should be done, but what does it have an inflationary effect? It only has an inflationary effect. I mean, if you if you give people what feels to be free money, then they will chase goods with it. Um, that's what happens. Um, and so what are the – I guess the you know the economic consequences everybody can deal with. There are these, uh, but then there are these other weird uh, counterinflationary signs. You know, like insanely low interest rates. Um, I just have a friend who just got a mortgage at two point two five percent fixed over thirty years. It's a big mortgage, and there are various other things that happened that made that got the bank to lower it to that level. But I mean, that's effectively free money. You know, it's being given money for 30 years. Um, uh, so that's kind of counterinflationary, and the bond market is counterinflationary. But, like, the so the politics of this are going to be very weird and very interesting. But if they're bad, Republicans aren't going to get blamed for it, and Biden is. That's just what happens with the macro economy. Like, you blame the president, right? I mean, am I... It's not as if Biden doesn't know it. I mean, you know, remember the laughable 4th of July, um, uh, you know. Oh, the 16th cent being yeah, you're right. going to say. Yes, yes, yes. On the I yeah. mean, they're, 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 they're both defensive and sort of desperately defensive <clears throat> on this point. And yet they're not uh, doing anything about it. I mean, they're, they're committed. They have one big idea, give people money, and that's pretty much all they got. And that's what they're going to keep going with. Even if it rises the cost of consumer goods up to, including staples, basic food items that you need to keep in your house. I mean, I can't imagine a more textbook example of how you generate a political backlash. And yet they're, they're just 
just on autopilot? Just this is just inertia. Well, it is sort of a bind for them, right? I think when Biden came into office, he wanted to uh, appear as though he was hands-on about COVID and the pass another stimulus bill, which is inflationary. At the same time, like the inflation hurts him, so it's like something of a of a bind for him. Well, I mean, there's also this thing, this executive order he signed last Friday, uh, which he claims is there to stimulate competition, but which is a massively regulatory, you know, uh, executive order, the purpose of which is to have bureaucrats at OMB and whatever start declaring what is and what is not competitive, all of which, of course, itself, you know, load load regulations on businesses and that will also have that that in tandem with other stuff can have a very you know very inflationary uh context because you're you're going to increase the price of goods and those that increase is going to have to be passed on to somebody and and therefore it will then then be 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 shouldered by them but i i i just uh i look at this and i think okay we're looking at we're looking at inflation uh rising in a way we haven't seen in a generation really and they're get they're talking about a three trillion dollar budget reconciliation package on top of the 1.2 trillion dollar uh infrastructure bill that is i i assume is going to pass once all the right i mean it looks like it's going to pass republicans aren't going to aren't going to like crap out and not vote for without it. it without assurances on the reconciliation package well it was Bo- biden was the one who said i need reconciliation that the that the that the that i need assurance that the reconciliation bill is going to pass or i'll veto it and then he had to walk that back i mean i don't know if if, if republicans or mansion and cinema or whatever can can play the same card in reverse right to say we need assurances that the reconciliation package isn't going to be bad news before we vote for this. I mean, the, the simple fact of the matter is that Republicans as well as Democrats like a lot of the spending that's in the infrastructure package. The reconciliation package is a whole other story. Um, yeah, I think their strategy was, the Republican strategy was to be a part of a bill that contains these broadly popular provisions and leave Democrats holding the bag on you know all the climate funding and electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and remains to be seen whether that uh, inclination or that instinct is is a good one. Well, I mean, so de- Republicans may be counting on this is the question. So, if Biden comes up with a three trillion dollar bill as opposed to the six trillion dollar bill that Bernie Sanders wants, does Bernie Sanders vote against it and then it's dead? Right? I mean, it's you only need one senator to spike. Uh, any bill, uh, if it needs 51 votes, no. Sanders can say, "I'm sorry, I'm not. You know, I'm not going to provide cover for this Republican piece of legislation that only spends three trillion new dollars. It's a disgusting Republican sham, and I'm not going to vote for it." And that's the end of that. Like that's the interesting cross pressure. Wait, I why guess. would that? Why would that happen if like ten Republicans vote for it? Why could Bernie stop it? Would ten Republicans vote for a three trillion dollar? Uh, just I, 
Sorry, I meant this. Oh, I'm sorry. Like no, I'm talking about the reconciliation. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, understand. Understand. Yeah. understand. Yeah, I'm only I'm only saying that in the end, you know, the danger to Biden, I guess, on the reconciliation bill uh, is that it is it, it's too big for Mansion, but it's too small for Bernie. So Mansion votes against it and kills it, or Bernie votes against it and kills it, which is why they shouldn't be doing this stuff in the first place. It's so insane that they swallowed the Kool-Aid on how they could be transformational with a 50-50 Senate. Especially because up until the point that it's killed one way or another, it gets tons of of media play about its contents and about about the ambitious um, wish list that that it contains. So you you get sort of all the all the coverage of the of the radical policy without the radical policy that you want. Okay. Uh, so we've come to no conclusion about anything except that you should download Inkstain Wretches, the new podcast yes. featuring Eliana Johnson and Chris Starwalt on Nebulous Media. You can get it through Apple, uh, Stitcher, Google, Schmitcher, and Schnapple, and wherever po- fine podcasts are cooked. And I, I don't have no idea what I'm saying. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Christine maybe back on Thursday but she'll be gone tomorrow and gone Friday we don't know but you'll just have we'll just have to soldier on so thanks Eliana for joining us thank and for you Abe, for having me uh, pleasure and for Abe and Noah I'm John Podhortz keep the candle burning